there's a question, there's a question that you and I have probably asked more times than we care to count. Why? Why? It's a pretty versatile question. It's a really good one. I like asking it a lot because uh, it, uh, it's used to understand form and function. It's used to analyze or critique history. It can be used in times of great trouble as a means of plumbing the depths of our situation to understand the deepest joys and most difficult sorrows of the moment. Why? As a parent, some of you have probably been asked the why question more times than you can count. Why is the sky blue? Why are my eyes blue? Why is grandma's hair blue? Why so many questions associated with the color blue? Why? It really is a great question and one that we don't really ask often enough when it comes to the practice of our faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have never felt permission to ask why over the years. And maybe when you did ask the question why, you were met with a response that was something along the lines of, because we're Christians and it's just what Christians do or don't do, dependent on the circumstances. I don't know about you, but that answer was never good enough for me and it still isn't today. After all, I mean, as Christians, aren't we encouraged to read Scripture? And when we read Scripture, we, we see people who ask questions and they were called uh, noble in character. Or, or we, we see the, ad, the admonition of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, uh, starting in verse 12 uh, and, and going through verse 13. This is following a conversation about the character and the humility of Christ and the posture that we ought to take as a, as a part of that. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have obeyed not only in my presence not much now much more in my absence continue to work out your salvation or continue to work out your theology as it says in some other translations with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes so how do we do that how do we do that how do we answer the why questions well we begin by simply asking it. Or to ask the question a little bit more precisely, why do we do what we do in church? Why do we do the things that we do as Christians? Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be diving into a, a series of messages called Christianing, uh, where we're going to answer the questions of why we do some of the things that we do as Christians. Because I think that it's really important for us to, if you've been in the church for a long time, sometimes you forget, um, you get habituated to this is why we do the thing that we are, this is the thing that we do just because it's simply what we do. And you get stuck in that, <laughs> that loop. Um, or if you're new to faith and you're trying to understand like, why is this the thing that happens in this context? Hopefully, over the next month, we will be able to answer some of those questions together as we, as we ask them 
And, uh, and this, is, this message series is also built because I, I know that it's summertime and some of you guys in, the, in, in this last little bit of summer that we have here are gonna try to squeeze out one, or, one more vacation if you, if you can. And we know that, that uh, summer is like five minutes in Wisconsin. So uh, we understand that. The messages will be online at ecwesleyan.net. But this is meant to be a little bit of like drop out, drop, uh, drop in, drop out. So um, the messages will be online at ecwesleyan.net. Uh, .net in case you miss one. And so since there are no half measures with me, um, you guys who have known me for the last seven years know that to be true, um, we're going to dive into probably one of the most controversial and contested questions um, that's on the list of, uh, of questions that, uh, that we're going to talk about over the next month. And, and we're not going to be able to cover everything in every one of these, so I'm just letting you know off the top of my head, some of this is going to be me throwing this out there to you to chew on and think about and pray about. About. And my hope is that at the end of the service, we have or not, not just the service, but at the end of the series, we have a better understanding and some better underpinning for our faith that strengthens us because we have a better idea of why we do the things that we do. So what's the question for today? Why do we sing so much in church? Why do we sing so much in church? If you think about it, Church is one of the few places that you go to where part of the order of the things that we, you do, like the, 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 the social values of the, the place, or that we sing together. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, outside of going to like a karaoke night, which is an event that you go to for the, the purpose of, of singing or a concert, there really aren't a lot of venues that you will go to and, and join together in song. This, this question really doesn't have a singular pat answer. It has layered questions that go along with it. Um, the, things like our posture in worship. Why do we stand or raise our hands? Why do we sing with music? Uh, why, is that music some, why can that music sometimes be so loud? Um, why, is it typically, uh, why does singing typically happen before a sermon? Why do we sing new songs or songs in a different style? And the list goes on and on and on. And maybe for some of you who know me out there, you're, you're, you may be thinking, okay, well, you're a musician, Pastor Damien. How can you approach this from a non-biased standpoint? It's a fair question. Um, so how about we look at, at something? Let's look at Martin Luther. Luther was a, a great theologian. He, uh, uh, we, we, we pay a, a big debt to, uh, to his obedience to God in that um, the, the church reformed through, through some of, uh, of Luther's actions. But let's see what Luther has to say about music. He says, he says when, men, when man's natural ability is wedded and polished to the extent that it becomes an art, then do we note with great surprise the great and perfect wisdom of God in music, which is, after all, his product and his gift. We marvel when we hear music in which one voice sings a simple melody while three or four or five other voices play and trip lustily around the voice that sings its simple melody and adorns this simple melody wonderfully with artistic music, musical effects, thus reminding us of a heavenly dance where all meet in a spirit of friendliness, caress, and embrace. 
A person who gives this some thought and yet does not regard it, music, as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of donkeys or grunting of hogs. Okay, Luther, you maybe got a little bit harsh there at the end. Was that really necessary? Okay, it's a strong point. But consider this. God gave us the capacity to understand and enjoy music and to sing to, and, 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 and consider this in, in our place for of, of gather, music in our place of gathering. God gave us music as a vehicle to teach us and to teach each other about God. Let's check out what Psalm, uh, Psalm number 61, or I'm sorry, Psalm 96 uh, says here in verse one through, uh, through three. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. It's an admonishment. It's an admonition, sorry, to declare praise or to ascribe value to, to recognize God in all of his glory, in all of his power, in all of his authority, and to share testimonies or stories of the great things that he has done and so, so much more. So singing songs of praise are such a central part of the Christian experience because it adds an extra layer. It adds an extra dimension of that creative expression in our lives. If you think about it like this for a second, the Bible contains over 400 references of singing. It contains around 50 direct commands to sing. One of the largest books that we have in the Bible is the Psalms, a book of songs. And we have examples of Jesus singing songs of praise during the Last Supper with the Twelve. So you might say, you might say that singing together is a vital and foundational part of the Christian experience. And so with all of that in mind, let's look at some of the questions, some of the why questions why do we stand, sit, kneel, raise hands, look towards heaven and or all of the above while trying to sing? Well, in 1989, Disney released The Little Mermaid, a story about a young mermaid named Ariel who is fascinated by life on land and all of its strange inventions, including the dinglehopper. During one of her adventures and observations of humanity, uh, she observes a human prince named Eric and in true Disney fashion falls in love with him after rescuing him from a terrible storm and tries, tries to find a way to become part of his world. In order to do this, she strikes a deal with the nefarious Ursula who makes her human at the low, low price of her voice. When asking how she would be able to communicate with Eric to tell him, him that it was her that saved his life, Ursula is, her advice was simple and two words. And if you know those words, say it with me. Body language. That was awesome. <laughs> Believe it or not, our physical posture is a part of our expression of worship as we sing. It's no coincidence that, that Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 that our bodies 
are, are, living are to be living sacrifices to God that are holy and pleasing to God as part of our true and proper worship. Now this passage is more to, has more to do than just simply our posture as we sing, but it does communicate that all of this is a tool for praise. And all throughout scripture we find different people taking different postures. And I, I think one of the things that's a really neat exercise to do is go through scripture and look at any, any experience that someone has had where they have a vision of heaven or the, they're in the presence of God and look at their posture during those moments. And you'll find, you'll find some incredible uh, uh, postures of worship during that. Isaiah 6 is one of them. As, uh, as God is calling out Isaiah to be a prophet, Isaiah has this vision of the Lord seated on his throne and, and then his angels are flying around singing to one another and declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah's words following that reveal this posture of humility in the presence of God. He says, he says, God, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips that lives among a people of unclean lips. I'm wrecked, I'm ruined. In Revelation, at the beginning of John's vision, he sees the brilliance of the Lord and John writes that I fell at my feet as though I were dead. Like he just kind of like limp fishes it. He crumbles under the realization of God's awesomeness. In Psalm 28, David cries out to the Lord declaring, hear my cry for mercy as I call for help, as I lift up my hands to the most holy place. David is saying, God, I'm, I'm kind of like a child right now and, and I know that you're like a loving father and, and, and I'm just, I'm raising my hands to you for help because you're where my help comes from and I'm helpless all the way down here in this moment. In 1 Timothy, Paul admonishes young Timothy, encouraging the people to raise up holy hands in prayer. Paul reminds Timothy of the same thing that he reminds the Roman church. Your hands, your body, they are made holy by God. They are set apart for his glory. I want to encourage you this morning, and I know that I said something like this on the, on the front end of the service, but I know that some of you have physical limitations. Sometimes the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And notice that these aren't just physical postures, but they are the posture of the heart and the body as well. And if we have not expressed this clearly enough to you, please forgive us for this. But as we sing together, as we worship together, I want to encourage you to express what the, the posture of worship that you can that is in tune with your heart because if that is, if that is connected to, if those two things are, are in, uh, in agreement or in unity with one another, I think that God is so pleased by that. So if you sit, do so for the glory of God. And if you stand, do so for the glory of God. And if you raise your hands, do so for the glory of God. If you, if you are, are head bowed for the glory of God, if your eyes towards heaven, glory, be, may the glory be to God in all, of the thi in all of those things, in all of our posture. May our postures reflect the attitude of our heart and may our hearts be in tune with our Father. All right, question number two. Why do we sing the songs that we sing?
A few years ago, we shared a, a guiding principle concerning Sunday mornings and some of the changes to the culture of Eau Claire Wesleyan Church. When we come together as a church on Sunday morning, it is for the purpose of engaging in worship through, through song and through the word. Those two things are inseparable and unifying. When we sing together, it declares who Jesus is, the deep truths of his character and the hope that we have in him. One of Pastor Mark's favorite New Testament uh, scholars to quote, Gordon Fee, once said, show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. As we were preparing for this morning, I shared with the worship team something that has been uh, just ever present. I, I read this several years ago. But as, as worshipers, as worship leaders, we are theologians. We are people who are teaching one another about who God is as we sing together. You see, because we're singing about the, the nature of God and our relationship with him. It's a declaration of his holiness and a recognition of our lacking, but the sufficiency of Jesus in our shortcomings. This is why in two separate letters that the Apostle Paul urges the early church, he says it in, in passing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.19, but more in depth in Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So when we sing together, it isn't for the love of music. It's for the declaration of God's character for our mutual encouragement and challenge. And I really want to uh, challenge you. If it's, it's easy sometimes for us to get caught up in music and styles and, and, and stuff like that, but I want to encourage you to pay attention when we sing. What you will find is that there are some wonderful, beautiful truths about Jesus that are spoken in a fresh, modern voice and the truths that we sing are for the purpose of tuning our hearts, minds, emotion, and spirit with the Lord in order to hear from him better as the word is declared through preaching. There's another reason why we sing the songs that we sing, is, and that is that, that, uh, that our praise, our praise is our battle cry. We wage war in worship against the spiritual forces of our enemy. Jesus calls Satan a liar and murderer from the very beginning of time. And what better way to combat lies than with truth? And what better way to snuff out his murderous ways than with the joy of thanksgiving? Psalm 149 declares that the praise of God is like a double-edged sword in the hands of the saints. Singing songs of praise puts the power of God on display, measuring everything else by it. And not only that, when we sing together, it is an expression of unity that our enemy hates. There is nothing that aggravates our enemy more than when we, when the church is unified together in Christ. All right, let's move on to the next one. Number three, why does the music have to be loud, so loud sometimes? I told you, no half measures today. This one is a short answer. Um, 
But before I give you it, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to get something in your mind right now. I want you to think about your deepest sorrow right now, in that moment when you experience your deepest sorrow. But I also want you to get in mind the greatest joy that you have ever experienced. There's something that both of those have in common. There is this thing in your heart that wells up and it rumbles and it wants to be let out. And sometimes that comes in the form of tears. Sometimes that comes in the, for, in the form of shouts. Sometimes that comes in the form of just, ah, this is awesome. Sometimes there's just no other way. There's just no other way to sing our praises to God than to be loud, to be exuberant in what we do. There are two scriptural reasons that, uh, and these are by no means the only ones. Reason number one, in John 4, 23 through 24, Jesus declares in his conversation with, uh, with uh, the woman at the well, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Spirit, in the, uh, the Father and the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that see, the Father seeks. God is Spirit and his worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. This spirit in tru and truth worship is, uh, is worship that is enthusiastic but also has biblical integrity. The, the word that we get, the, our word enthusiasm from the Greek term entheos literally means to be filled with the spirit of God. There's this joy, there's this, this, this exuberant expression that, and, and I want you to keep in mind, this isn't like just some euphoric expression of, of frenzied fanaticism. We're not about that. We're not about making this sensational. But it is a pouring out of authentic spirit-filled emotion, whether it's in joy or hope or humility or repentance. And sometimes there's just, the only way to do it is to be loud. It's not the only way to do it. But sometimes, that's the only way to do it. Number two, we have biblical examples that we read of, of worship in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament of, of, uh, of, of calls for, for strumming of strings and clashing of cymbals, the resounding of horns, the elevation of voices and the raising of holy hands and much, much more. Not only that, Revelation 7 talks about the mass of people that will be before the throne of God from every tongue and nation and language and tribe that will be declaring the glories of God it's gonna be a little bit chaotic. It might get a little noisy. But God is being praised. And if God is being praised in what's being done, then awesome. Okay. One more question. And then we're gonna put this into practice. Because what good is information without application? Why do we sing new songs? Simply put, this is an anticipation for the songs yet to come. In, Reve in Revelation 5.10, it says that they sang a new song. 
They sang, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. In his book, Recalling the Hope of Glory, Alan Ross shares a reminder that if we ever begin to comprehend the risen Christ in all his glory, or faintly hear the heavenly choirs that, that surround the throne with their anthems of praise, or imagine what life in the presence of the Lord will be like, then we will never, ever again be satisfied with worship as usual. We will always be striving to make our worship fit for his glory. And we will always be aware that our efforts, no matter how good and noble, are still of this world and not yet of that one. Obviously, every analogy breaks down somewhere. Singing all new songs every week might get distracting. But the core of what Ross writes is that we should never be content to simply worship or sing songs because they're business as usual. But our hearts should anticipate and participate in the creative expressions of a creative God, of the creative God that they celebrate. This also really speaks to our Wesleyan heritage too. John and Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 songs over the course of their lifetime that were used in the churches that they were connected with. Some interesting history there. So to wrap all of this together, we sing in church as an expression of unity. We're declaring the wonders and truths of Jesus Christ that bring us together. We sing to declare our obedience to and desperate dependency in God's kingdom made manifest in us and in this world as we prepare for life in the next. So as we raise our voices and our hands to heaven, we signify our allegiance to the King of kings and Lord of lords, waging spiritual warfare through praise. We sing with creativity, passion, and fervor to call back to the image of himself which God has placed in each and every one of us. So sing here. Let's do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so blown away that you would, you would use us, each and every one of us in this room, to bring you glory and honor and praise. And God, as we, as we declare truths about you here this morning, God, I pray that it would be holy and pleasing to you, that we would be encouraged by it, and that you would be elevated by it too. We give you glory, Jesus. We know you've been looking forward to this. And so God, I pray that we would do it with all joy and with all enthusiasm, with every part of our being, that everything in this room that has breath would give you praise. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you join with us this morning as we declare truths about our God and King today?